Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When Elliot Jacques was born, 1917, the average man in America lived to 48, and the average woman lived to 54. Jacques was a psychoanalyst, and he was also someone who consulted for businesses, and he coined a term that stuck with us, midlife crisis. Now, when Jacques was born, life's midpoint for Americans was somewhere in your mid-20s. Now, life expectancy in America is 77 for men, 82 for women, and the U.S. is actually outdone by dozens of countries on that front. But that huge increase in longevity brings a different kind of midlife crisis. What if your career is so long that you'll get bored doing the same job for 50 or 60 years? How does it affect your decisions about getting married or having kids if you know you're going to live a fair amount longer than your grandparents did? Andrew Scott is a professor of economics at London Business School, and he says that as lifespans have skyrocketed over the past couple of centuries, our relationships, our jobs, even our stages in life have changed drastically. And it's about to happen again. Andrew Scott is co-author of The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Andrew, thanks for being here. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest in the book. So first of all, how long, on average, are children born today in developed countries going to live, you know, versus maybe somebody who is middle-aged today? Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, this is a bit like climate change. How can you predict into the future Mm -hmm. uh, current trends? And there's lots of ifs and buts. And we're looking at the average data here and averages conceal an awful lot. But basically, the trend over the last 200 years has been that every 10 years, life expectancy has increased by two or three. So what that roughly means is that you've got a good chance of living another six to nine years longer than your parents. And that really means that children born in the rich countries since 2000 have got a more than 50% chance of living to be over 100. Wow. So I don't know if you've done the math, but if you went back a couple hundred years, how long were people living then versus today? Yes, this is where it all gets uh, quite complicated. If you go back 200 years, people would be living to around about mid-40s. That's the life expectancy at birth. So then the question is how long, you know, we've seen huge improvements in infant mortality, which gave a big boost to life expectancy. Then we saw big improvements in dealing with um, cardiac problems and improving Mm -hmm. uh, how we treat and also deal with issues like alcohol and tobacco. So we've seen fantastic improvements in survival rates for those who are middle-aged. And what we're now seeing is big improvements in both um, survival rates and fitness for those in their 70s, 80s and 90s. So the result is that the fastest growing age group now is basically people aged over 100. It's obviously growing from a very low base. There's a big debate about how long this can carry on for. Uh, the oldest person ever to have lived was a, a French lady who lived to the age of 122. So we know that that's possible. But of course, there are those around who argue that the first person to live to 500 has already been born, given the developments in science. But I think if you look at the, the data and the current trends, you know, I'm 51. If you look at someone born today, they've probably got another 10 years of life on me. And if you look at UK data, my life expectancy is around about 
18990. So someone mm. born today has a very real chance of living to 100. And, and that's the average. There'll be many people living beyond that. Which is incredible in some ways that somebody born while you are still alive right, has such a, a much longer expected lifespan than you do. I mean, that, that's an incredible shift in, we're not talking thousands of years, we're talking 50, 60 years. No, it is. And, and, and we kind of feel that what's really happened is that because so many people base longevity on what their parents or what their grandparents do, we're kind of missing out on things. And, you know, the, the thesis that we have in the book is that we've really designed a, a life that works over 70 years, but isn't going to be able to be stretched to 100 years. And, you know, there's lots of metaphors you can use here. Most people mistakenly think about this longevity issue is about what you do at the end of life. But we think you're going to redesign all of life. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if life is no longer a 10-mile race but a 15-mile race, you have whole new tactics and whole new stages. And, of course, you hit the old milestones at different points in time, which is one reason we think people are getting married later, buying cars, right. buying houses, right. having children later. So uh, let me just go back for a minute. If over the last couple of hundred years, um, our lifespans have increased from, let's say, roughly 40 to roughly 80, huge increase. How yeah. have we redesigned our lives, um, if we have, to accommodate that enormous amount more time that we have. So it's it's really interesting, isn't it? We, we think of time as being something quite fixed, but you know, time is in so many ways a social convention. And I think over the last 200 years, you see two ways in which time has been structured. One is around the Industrial Revolution and the working week and the weekend. But the other one, which I think is really interesting, is the 20th century saw the invention of two new stages of life, two stages of life that didn't exist before. That was teenagers and that was retirees. For most of human history, you just had children and then you became an adult. But as we live for longer, as schooling was extended, we had this sort of intermediate stage of adolescence. And it took a long while for society to work out what to do with them. And eventually they hit upon the concept of the teenager, which is somewhat now recognized. And then, of course, what people used to do was just work until they died. And that wasn't a happy ending because as you get older, you do get more frail. So you earned less. You worked all the time, but you were financially insecure. You'd often have to live in the house with your children, which wasn't a happy experience for both sides. And then in the 20th century, we invented this concept of retirement and said people should be able to have a time at the end of their life in leisure where they're financially secure. So that was two stages that were invented, I would say, because longevity was now going out to 70. Now it's going out to 100. We think there will be whole new stages of life being uh, created and not just teenagers and retirees, but other stages as well. I'm Kara Miller talking to Andrew Scott, author of The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. So as the lifespan then goes from, let's say, 75, 80 to 100, what is going to happen just as adolescence and retirement were two stages of life that simply, you know, if you had talked to people about that a couple hundred years ago, they, they would have looked at you with a blank stare. What are we creating now? That, that people today would think, huh, that's interesting. That's a new stage of life. So there's a number of interesting things there. So let me tell you some of the new stages that we think we can see emerge, although I think we're set for a big period of experimentation. Just as it took sort of 80 years to really nail the concept of the teenage years, it may take a long while to find out what the new stages are. So one one uh, I think is actually sort of a post-teenage period, between the ages of 18 and 30. Um, the, the date at which people take on 
what have traditionally been full adult responsibilities, by which I mean a job, a house, a family, etc., has been pushed right back. So in the early 60s, by the age of 21, 50% of Americans were married. Hmm. Now, uh, it's 28 is the age at which 50% of Americans are married. And, you know, I look at pictures of my father when he's 14. He looks incredibly old. He's wearing a suit and tie. He has a job. He's paying He's paying rent. Uh, and then you know, I didn't really pick up those responsibilities till my early 20s. And I look at my children, who I love dearly, but I think I can't see them picking up those responsibilities to the late 20s. No, I mean, I have to say, it's really true. I mean, my, my grandmother got married when she was 20, which seems terribly young to me now. But I don't think in her world that was... You know, that she was getting married at a different time than, I mean, you know, it, it seemed exactly. logical. Well, if we follow our social role models. And I think I think there's two reasons why we're seeing this sort of um, lengthening, lengthening of the time before you take on adult responsibilities. Some of them are negative. You know, the houses are expensive. People mm-hmm. have got student debt. It's hard to get on the job market. So there's some negative right. forces at work. But I think there also are some positive ones. And the way we look at it is as follows, which is that, over a longer life, options become more valuable. If you look, in financial markets, you can buy an option to buy a sh- uh, share. And uh, that becomes more valuable the longer over which the period it's held. And over a longer life, options are more important. You don't want to cash in so early. Mm-hmm. So whereas my father might say this is a generation that lack commitment, I would say they're probably investing in options. They're finding out <laughs> what they like, what they're good at, and they're saying, I've got this very long life ahead of me. Right. This used to be a 10-mile race. It's a 15-mile race. I'm not going to go flat out from an early stage. I'm going to meander around a little bit. So kind of a new age of entrepreneurship, which interestingly, I think you're also seeing in people age 60 plus. A lot of people are saying, well, look, I'm still fit and healthy. I haven't got enough money to sort of in my pension to last me through to 90 or 100. So I don't want to touch my pension yet. I don't want to work full time, but I'm quite interested in doing something that is a bit about me and a bit more uh, interesting, a bit more entrepreneurial. So you're seeing the same sort of behavior actually in people in their 60s, which I think is Hmm. interesting. Yeah, no, that's a really... Salient point, I think, because the, you know, the meaning of what it means to be quote unquote old, I think, has to change because, you know, people used to retire at 65, you know, and and here in the States where when Social Security was passed, people got Social Security for a couple of years and then on average they died. Um, And now it's the beginning of a whole, you know, very, very often multi-decade period of your life. So, you know, are you old at 65? I'm not sure. Ah, uh, it's brilliant. So I think we see there's all sorts of things that need to change. And we're so wedded to certain numbers having a significance that, oh, you're old. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, I worry that as I get older, this is just me trying to pretend I'm young. But I don't <laughs> think so. You know, you know what, what people do. So give me, give me an example. Uh, divorce rates are falling in general. Uh, but they're rising here for those in their 60s, 70s. And the fastest growth rate is happening from people in their 80s. The highest so divorce rate is it, it, the highest the growth, growth in, is the highest growth in, in divorce rates is in the eighties. Now that's starting from a very very low base, hence the growth is very very high. But you know clearly you know what people associate with certain numbers changes when you live to a hundred and not seventy. The other thing we think is important is that over a longer life, 
we don't think a three-stage life of education, work and retirement can work. We think we talk about a multi-stage life. And a multi-stage life probably involves different career paths. Sometimes just working for money, sometimes a bit more of a work-life balance, other times maybe doing something more for society. But you're going to go through a lot more transitions. And we, we like this idea of what we call juvenescence. So adolescents are very good at change. Adults typically aren't. But over a longer life, you're going to have to go through more change. So we think people are being more juvenescent. So for a whole host of reasons, we think that you're going to see a lot more flexible career paths. And with that comes the end of the stigma, because in a three-stage life measured out over 70 years, you have what we call lockstep. You know, you tell me you're 20, I kind of know what you're doing in life. You tell me you're 40, I know what you're doing in life. And everyone does it at the same time. And if you fall out of lockstep, people treat it very suspiciously. Mm -hmm. But we think, because you can have a multi-stage life and you can sequence that life in many different ways, you know, you could do your money-making career from 20 to 30 or from 40 to 50. And so because you're going to sequence things in different ways, we'll begin to see the end of lockstep. I think it's going to create some very interesting uh, career issues, both for individuals and for firms, because people will have different priorities at different points in life. You could be an undergraduate at 20, 40 or 60. You could be a senior manager at 30, 50 or 70. So there's an awful lot of change to lockstep uh, coming, we think. How are governments thinking about this, dealing with this? It seems like, uh, first of all, a terrible strain on governments. And second of all, they have to think about everybody, the people who are putting away 10 or 20 percent a year and the people who are putting away nothing a year, maybe because they're not thinking about retirement, but maybe they are and they just they can't, you know, they're paying everything to live in the houses they're in and to eat and, you know, transportation and all that. And at the end of the week, there's just nothing left. One of the things we try and do in the book is to be almost irritatingly positive. We try and say this is a massive opportunity um, because if we do redesign life, we think this is just a fact. Yeah, most people want more time. We are on average living longer and we're healthier for longer. This should be a massive positive for us. So the fact that many people, when we tell them this, sort of groan and say, oh, my God, uh, we just seem to have something, you know, that can't be right. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to be very positive thinking about what the options are. And I do think governments need to create a more positive atmosphere around this because at the moment most of the debate is about you can't afford a pension and you're going to get Alzheimer's none of which people want to engage with it's all about a bad end of life whereas we think this is about all of life the inequality issues I think are terribly terribly worrying the natural thing to do will be to raise retirement age because we can't afford to pay state or private pensions at 60 if people are living to 100 the only trouble is if those with lower income are uh, have life expectancy of 75 or 80, you then run the danger of actually removing retirement for that group, which would be terrible. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need to do two things. One is how do we increase life expectancy for everyone? And secondly, how do we make sure that retirement just doesn't come a preserve of the better off? So that is a massive challenge because you can however unpopular it is politically, you can always take money from the rich and give it to the poor, but you can't take years of life from the rich and give it to the poor. Mm -hmm. So this is about public education, it's about nutrition and health, availability of food, fitness and um, medical resources. And that's a really challenging agenda that I think will get more and more up the agenda. Right now, people are focusing on income inequality. But when income inequality leads to 20 years differences in life expectancy, we'll start to see much more around it. 
Andrew Scott is professor of economics at London Business School. He's also the co-author of the book, The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in the Age of Longevity. Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been great fun to talk. On our Facebook page, we've got a great story for you about a 94-year-old inventor who, as they say, is on fuego. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.